0: Viney. This podcast is about the books that have been forgotten, the literature that no one reads anymore. Dr. Kate MacDonald is a lecturer in the English department at the University of Ghent in Belgium. She seeks to uncover the literary gems of the recent past, books which achieved huge commercial success when they were published but are now rarely read or are no longer in print. Kate's research practice operates against the grain, against the prescribed grates that we are told we should read which still dominate university reading lists and benefit from the vintage, classic, or essential status which helps to keep them in print. Instead, Kate actively looks for the unread, neglected, and abandoned in search of a brilliant or unusual story. Her quest for an analysis of forgotten fiction begins with a story of its own, with a rummage, with a hunt, with a dig into the wonderful world of second-hand print. So, Kate invited me to join her at Scoop Books in London, a second-hand bookshop full of untold treasures. Kate, you've made a discovery.
1: Yeah, this is one I've been looking for for some time. It's Sorrel and Son by Warwick Deeping. And he was a huge bestseller in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, but now he is really despised. Nobody likes him. He's beginning to be discussed in a critical way, but only because he was such a malevolent, nasty, angry man And this book is supposed to be one of the classics. So I thought, well, I need to read him because I'm interested in writers, male writers of the interwar period.
0: Particularly angry men?
1: Angry men are good because angry men means there's an emotional response to their times that they're really desperate to get out and to convey to other people. And I want to know what those messages are. That's why I write about the masculine middlebrow.
0: So he's angry... His public persona is angry, or his fiction is angry? I do Is don't this a, know. one of the, the cult of the author preceding the cult of the work?
1: That's the thing, I don't know very much about him, apart from what I read from the very little amount of critical literature there is on him, that he was a genuinely angry bloke. And I'd like to find out, is the literature, is his fiction also angry? And if so, what was it about? And then can I go back to the critical literature and say, actually, I don't agree? Or yes, I do agree, but not in this case. So in a way, it's helping me make my own mind up.
0: It's the pleasure of being in bookshops of any kind, but particularly bookshops like this that have such an eclectic collection, really a collection of many different yeah. you know, myriad collections that kind of find their way one way or another mm. into this single room. Yeah. And then if you wander around then, and even if you're not interested in buying anything, then they you have those kind of uh, reminders mm. th- of particular times, or particular encounters with writers.
1: Yeah, I tend when I go to a bookshop like this, I will go in with one or two books in mind or writers in mind that I know I'm looking for and I'm just checking up what have they got. And then I'll just browse. And sometimes you get the feel you get the feel that actually you mustn't stop rising. there's something here, just keep looking don't don't focus, just keep rising and then I usually find something that's really good
0: so the method of collection for you is just sheer activity it's being it, it's it's being just there. doing
1: it's stock taking, seeing what's on the shelves. oh that looks interesting, and oh good, I've been looking for this and that, lo- that looks extraordinary. i have never heard of it. What's this about? Yes, it's, it's serendipity and it's being there at the right time at the same time that the book is still there.
0: I think it was Abby Warburg who believed that the book that you always wanted was the next of the one that you thought you were yes. after. Yes,
1: <laughs> that's very often true and it's usually the book you really want is the one you can't read the spine of because it's at the bottom shelf and it's so dusty and so faded by sun. You have to get on your knees and pull it out and look at it and then have hysterics because it's Either if you're a collector, which I am not, like a, a real collector, it's a first edition, or because you haven't thought you could ever find this particular copy. And it's, that's really exciting when you really find something good like that.
0: Partly because you've been burrowing around. There's a sort yeah. of f- physical labour of Yeah, it.
1: you've got your hands dirty. Yeah. I always come out of a bookshop like this with filthy hands. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm in there in the dust, just pulling things out and seeing what no one else has touched, what other people have missed.
0: This is the archaeology of uh, literary critics. It certainly
1: critic. is, yeah, it is. And it's also interesting how bookshops allow the dust to accrue. I mean, they have these books in beautiful order here, but there's still dusty heaps.
0: It marks the difference between a bookshop, say, and a major contemporary art museum. <laughs> Museum, yeah, where okay. no digging is required everything's labelled, everything's yeah. there everything that you hope would be there is probably there yeah. whereas uh,
1: this is a, well it's not so much a museum as, or a gallery this is more like a huge collection which has been ordered up to a certain point the way this has been ordered is by this can be sold for money and people might want this they wouldn't sell really, really tatty copies of books because nobody would want to buy them with ragged spines or you know, or or subjects that are really, really not interesting. But the question of the literary value, that is utterly personal to the buyer because the book I'm now holding in my hand, I'd quite like. Somebody else might think, oh, good Lord, put it in the bin. It's really valueless. That's what really matters.
0: It's odd, isn't it? I mean, I'm seeing the way that you grip this book. (laughs) And I know the feeling. You go into a second-hand bookshop and you make this great discovery. And then you think, my goodness, if I want this, Mm. then there's almost certainly someone else in the shop right now.
1: If I put it down, they'll take it. And I've got to hold it. And I've got to stagger around with a stack. And I can't put these down except behind the counter. Will you look after these? I will pay for them. In
0: In a regular bookshop, you put a book somewhere... It looks out of place, Mm -hmm. thus not for, you know, general kind of perusal by someone else. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a bookshop like this, Mm -hmm. I mean, it is very well-organized. You know that if you put it down, it's it's fair game.
1: It will. Someone will take it or someone will tidy it. I mean, these stacks here could be someone's choice who hasn't come back from this morning's browsing. It's impossible to tell. That's eight fish, please. Thank you.
0: To get away from the din and clatter of a commercial bookshop, we found a quiet room in which to continue our conversation about forgotten fiction. It's with no small irony that our room is on Gordon Square, the Wembley arena of the literary establishment, and an excellent place in which to discuss the worth of the so-called literary lower leagues. So, Kate, you don't do what most literary critics do.
1: No, I don't. What do I do? My first degree started off being a history degree, but I failed every single exam apart from my English exam, which was a minor. And so I completed my English degree and then took a PhD in English, and it became fairly obvious that English was my thing. But I can never forget that I was a historian a very long time ago. So now that's what I am. I'm a literary historian. And the kind of history I do is now print culture, book history, the history of reading, the books that people used to read and why.
0: And the books that some people no longer read?
1: Yeah, the books that people now have no idea about. The books that were read by my grandparents, your great-grandparents, my great-grandparents that no one has even heard of.
0: And you've called this Forgotten Fiction. Is this your term?
1: No, it's not. A journalist friend of mine called that. And I thought, yeah, that's good, I'll go with that.
0: Could you say what it means?
1: Forgotten Fiction. Forgotten Fiction is a books that nobody now has really heard of in the sense that they've never read them, but they may possibly have a memory of the title. So if I said a title like 84 Charing Cross Road, you might think, ah, heard of that, wasn't it a film? very few people will go back and think that was a book. That was not only a book, that was a major best-selling book in the 1960s. And then it was made into a film, then it was made into a TV series. So it's the, the root of the matter. You've got this layer of cultural stuff, but at the bottom there's a book.
0: Perhaps, could we put it like this, that part of your work is to kind of clear off some of that noise and get back to not the origin of the thing, but certainly its textual manifestation
1: Yes, I think that's true. I think clearing away the cultural clutter is the wrong word because clutter doesn't sound good and I don't want to be pejorative but going back to the beginning, going back to the book that first said these things, the first expression of these thoughts, the first recording of this moment in time, these feelings, that's what I like to look at.
0: Are there any criteria that you use to select a forgotten work for analysis and appraisal?
1: I think my first criterion would be do I enjoy reading it? There's no point in working on a book if you physically can't bring yourself to touch it or to, or just to find it a miserable experience. I've got to enjoy reading it. And that may not necessarily be true pleasure. That may also be, this is a really exciting book so I get so angry about it, or this is a book that really makes me fizz with frustration because I want to express a rejoinder in reading it. So I guess the emotional response, recalling an emotional response, that's what's important.
0: Okay, so you've found a book you really like, mm-hmm. and you look about and you're not really seeing an awful lot of critical literature or other mm-hmm. people writing about this work.
1: Mm-hmm. What do you do? What do I do? Well, I decided to start doing podcasts mainly because I prefer podcasts than reading book blogs, although I do read book blogs. I like listening. So, what I've got is a weekly podcast called Why I Really Like This Book. Um, It's got its own site, www.reallylikethisbook.com. You can find it on iTunes, on BlackBerry, and on Miro. Now, Miro is an American site, but it seems to get a lot of traffic. There's also a Facebook page. So every week, every Friday morning, 1.30 in the morning British time, the podcast is released to a waiting world. I'm working through the alphabet for authors. So I started with A for Allingham, B for Buchan, C for Colette. I'm now at letter R. The plan is... When I get to Z, I start doing a theme. And I think the first one's going to be good old-fashioned detective fiction. And then I'll go on to British science fiction fantasy novels, something like that. What's been fascinating is when I'm stuck at a letter and I've had to really work to find an author. So I, letter I, I did not have any authors beginning with I. So I looked in biography, in the biography section in my house, and I found Molly Izard a biography of Freya Stark. And that was brilliant because it gave me so much to talk about, about how biography works, what you expect when you read a biography. It was a good episode. I'm proud of that one. Q has been hard, but again, I twisted it. I talked about the, the critic, Sir Arthur Quiller Couch, and I ended up talking about the nature of criticism as a student might see it. X is going to be a Chinese author. I don't think there's any way of getting around that. <laughs> Z will be a Spanish one. I've got them lined up, but that's, that's um, the challenge.
0: It seems to me that you're making a platform for your work with your podcasts. Yeah. And I, I'm really interested in this because it seems that one of the structural uh, and integral parts of, of studying and, and gathering and foraging for forgotten fiction <laughs> is that there isn't that community that mm-hmm. you might find with... Wolf, or Eliot, or Shakespeare yeah. or Dryden or whoever
1: mm. I don't, it's difficult to gauge what the community might be for forgotten fiction because with my podcast series somebody will dip in, choose the authors they're interested in and then not ever come back I don't know how many people are out there thinking I've got to learn about every single one, it's a very difficult thing to understand um, I think what I like is for more people to talk to each other I think the podcast series is just a way for me to tell people like people who go to book groups, people like my mother, people like my students, who are interested in reading, who want to read, but also want to be pointed in different directions that they may not have thought about before.
0: There's something about finding forgotten fiction that seems to me to resonate with sort of hunting. You know, Mm. there must be certain moments, certain hunts, certain trophies somehow encapsulate both the spirit of some of your research Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and part of the history of that
1: research. Yeah, the the history of the hunt is fascinating. Um, My favourite hunts begin with nothing at all, a small, small thing that I might not have noticed and then the hunt might never have occurred. Somebody once sent me a book review. It was a photocopy from a 1930s magazine and the book review was about the author John Buchan, on whom I've done a lot of work, And I read the review, and I thought, well, this is useful, and I'll add it to my little file. And what is that? Because in the review, there was a mention of another author who I had never heard of, Una L. Silberad. And I, uh, Silberad, that name is not easily forgotten. And there are only two Silberads publishing in the 20th century. So, in the event, she's easy to track down. But how could I have missed this writer? I've spent most of my life looking in second-hand bookshops and trawling through. Uh, charity bookshops, jumble sales, that sort of thing, looking for books. So I started to research her, straight to the British Library. Who was she? My goodness, she's published 44 novels. How did I miss her? And the hunt just continued. Um, Most of it was done on the internet because I live in Belgium, it's difficult for me to find many second-hand bookshops with English books and the Belgian ones I know were completely out of stock. But on the internet I began to buy her books, very cheap prices, but what was really interesting Very low cost, two pounds, three pounds, which is low for an Edwardian First World War period novel, but very few copies, only two copies in the whole world on the market, and that's just bizarre. So I began to buy, a little bit more research, I discovered two or three other people are also looking into her at an academic level and also at a just personal interest level. I got in touch with the family who were very pleased to hear that somebody else was getting interested in great aunt Una's books. And I went back to the Internet to do more hunting, and then I find that suddenly the books have doubled in price, those that are left, and the the print-on-demand industry had really taken notice, and suddenly all her books, practically, were available as print-on-demand texts for at least £20, if not more. And that just shows you the Internet takes notice, the the online printing industries are very clever, they've got little bots that go around catching up with the, the searches. So I'm kind of stuck. I've got 19 out of 44 of her novels. I've done a lot of research. I've done a lot of writing about her. Other people are collaborating, so things are moving.
0: Have you got a reputation?
1: I have a reputation in a very small area.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I meant a reputation for collecting, because once you put your name out as someone that's really interested in getting certain authors... Works. That never occurred to then me. the the spider's web stretches for you, and, and yeah. people come into play. Uh-huh. Have you found that in your hunt for this?
1: And people say, "Oh, and you might." No, I've never. It's never occurred to me that me myself would actually be noted as someone who's doing the hunting. Um, I've never noticed that somebody has identified me as looking for a particular author, except when. You know, except on Amazon, but Amazon do that all the time. I, I will look for birthday presents for a 10-year-old niece, and the next time I look at Amazon, I'm getting all sorts of suggestions for toys for 10-year-olds. But that's not quite the same. Um, I don't get publisher's catalogue sent to me on spec. So, no, I'm not, I'm not a collector. That's probably the difference. Mm. I'm not buying high-end books. I'm not spending a lot of money. I have book collecting friends who do spend a fortune. They will spend two or £300 on an edition because it's a first edition, because it's got a Dutch wrapper, for whatever reason. I don't have that kind of money and I don't want to spend that kind of money. I just want a reading text, a book that I can look at.
0: Nevertheless, the market does respond to even you. I mean, it sounds like you're in a minority of one mm. in terms of searching out this author's work. And the market responded. And I'm interested in this relationship between forgotten fiction, on the one hand, Mm -hmm. and revival. Yeah. And I wondered, I mean, it sounds as if this author's work is still a long way from being a, you know, household tax. Everybody has on their shelves. But at what point does a forgotten work become remembered?
1: OK, there are some publishing houses which have a very enlightened attitude to rescuing forgotten fiction. Virago in Britain is the most well-known because they made their reputations on rescuing women's writing of the early 20th century. Other publishing houses followed suit, the women's press and also Persephone Books. Now, these houses need to exist. They have to publish work that's going to sell. Persephone Books has made a special case for rediscovering and re-presenting the work of Dorothy Whipple, who is a really excellent writer of the 1930s and 40s. But that's their pet thing. I've tried presenting Una Silberad to these publishing houses. And they're not interested for their own good commercial reasons, and that's fine, I've got no problem with that. But it's commercial. If they don't think they can sell the work, or that work or that writer does not fit within their remit, but within the, um, the group of writers they already published, they're not going to want to try it.
0: Whilst the doors may have been open in 1900, 1910 for mm-hmm. these writers, whenever they were writing, yeah. they might be firmly closed now.
1: They're firmly closed mostly in print but the internet has a lot of opportunities it's certainly possible to print unisilber as novels for print on demand yourself you can there are companies like lulu who Mm. will do reasonable design fairly low cost you can do it but that's not the kind of book i want i want a real book
0: because it is the case, it's extraordinary. Um, I went into a bookshop in Boston recently and they had a print-on-demand machine in-house in the bookstore. So you could go uh, to Gutenberg or any text, any online repository of text that were out of copyright mm-hmm. and you could, for a fee, have your own copy printed in front of you in 15 minutes, which I thought was just extraordinary. And yeah. it is the case that many of the the novelists that you're interested in, their copyright has expired and so mm-hmm. one can feasibly just yeah. print a copy for oneself, but you're not interested in that. And why no, is I'm, why is that?
1: Why do I want the older edition? I want the I want the old feel of the book. I want to see the old typeface. I want to see who printed it originally. I want to see the adverts. The editions I really like are the ones that have adverts for other authors and their works. Also, if you're lucky, you get adverts for things like soap flakes and fabrics and coats and um, patent foods for babies. All that stuff, that e- e- ephemeral paratextual material gives you so much more information about the original readers that the original publisher envisaged would be buying that book.
0: Because effectively, if you buy a print-on-demand book, you buy the text, mm. but you don't buy some of the social yeah. history that surrounds it, which is really no, you, your motivation.
1: Well, it's part of the motivation. The story, the story. The story. is still extremely important, but the extra extra stuff I find just as interesting in many ways. And a print-on-demand book in shiny modern copy photocopy paper, in glaring black ink, with a really inappropriate shiny cover, I just don't want it. I will only do that if I'm desperate, and I've got to read that book, and there's no other way of getting it.
0: And, of course... If you were to have your print-on-demand book, there would be no trip to the second-hand bookshop?
1: Absolutely not, and then I wouldn't find anything else, and that would be sad.
0: You've been listening to Will Viney and Dr Kate MacDonald discuss the importance of forgotten fiction. There are plenty of other podcasts available on the Pod Academy website, so please visit podacademy.org.